You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we're continuing our study of the characteristics of a committed disciple. We're calling Transformed Through Trust. With this week's message, here's Senior Pastor Lance Bourgeois. Several years ago, I learned about this thing that I kind of became really fascinated by. It was called six-word memoirs. Now, the origin of it is unclear. Some believe it began with Ernest Hemingway being asked if he could write a story in six words. Now, what ended up coming from it is people started thinking about their memoirs. If they were to think about an autobiography and look back in their life, what would be the six-word story that would capture your story? So a magazine kind of became fascinated by the possibility of how that would play itself out. And so they started inviting people to write in what their six-word memoir would be. Now think with me about what your six-word memoir would be. Because as we think about it, it wouldn't surprise you that there were some that were kind of funny, like this person, Elizabeth, who said, the psychic said I'd be richer. Now that's kind of funny. And yet what's funnier is that you would trust the psychic with your future anyway, right? So you have people that are trying to be comedic. You have people that are maybe being poignant. You have people that are sharing grief and pain and so forth. Now think about Bob. He said, I hope to outlive my regrets. And I don't know anything about Bob's story, but what you hear is he's got a lot of things he wishes he could do over again. And those regrets are deep enough that he hopes that he can live far enough out that he can let those things go. Or maybe there was Jim, won the fight, lost the girl. And I wonder if you've ever had that moment where you felt like the battlefield that you were on was so great, it was worth not stopping. And he won. At what cost? Because I hear in that, which I'm sure you do, is regret. I bet you we could all uh, understand Christine. Mistakes were made, but smarter now. Because we learn through failure. We know that we learn through failure. And so the hope is, after we've experienced failure, that maybe we could do it different next time. It's maybe we're not locked in to always repeating the same lessons all over again. Josh, I love this guy. I don't know this guy at all. I love that he did six words. Cried, defied, denied, sighed, died. But that wasn't the end of his story. Reapplied. Whatever that death-like experience is that he felt, he got up off the mat. And he went back after it again. And then I will tell you, I grabbed this one. Maybe you do too. Alana, Savior Complex makes for many disappointments. If you've ever been the one that feels like you can step in and save the day, if you felt like you were the one that could make the problems go away, that you could love somebody enough that they can make a different decision, as you recognize that that Savior Complex doesn't do any of us any favors. What intrigues me about this is this. These people are looking at their life and saying, this is my story up until now. So if I could get you to think with me, at the end of your life, if you're to look backwards on your life and say, okay, I would want my six-word memoir to read this way. Here's the good news, because we're here, we're listening, we're watching. You're here, and you have the capacity to look ahead and say, okay, whatever the gap is from what I would want it to be to where I am today, we all have the capacity to say, what needs to happen between here and here to make that six-word memoir that I want 
become my reality. See, that's what we need to think about today. And I would put before you at the end of our time this morning, I hope that I've convinced you that there's a way for you to live and improve the reality of what you would say your six-word memoir is today versus where you want it to be in the future. So we're going to begin that. As we started this study, we began with the idea is that you could have a trust in the Lord that would be so strong that regardless of what comes our way in this life, it could feel, we could feel the earth shaking under our feet, but that we could stand up with our faith and cling to the Lord and be secure in who he is and our trust in him. And so we started with this idea, what would that take? And we said, well, you're going to have to be a, a sincere disciple or follower of Christ. And so that's what's given rise to this study, is that we can be transformed by our trust in the Lord and who he is. And so we started talking about what's a disciple? That's where we began this study. And we talked about four levels, that you could be the curious, the one who's here to check out the claims of Christ, and then you can move into the convinced, he's who he says that he is, committed, okay, I'm going to follow him, to commissioned, I allow myself to be used by him for his purposes. And so it's against that backdrop that we recognize we come into this passage today, and we've been building to this point. Jesus has been building us to this point. And what he's going to offer us this morning is going to be a transformational thing. And so when we say this, what I want us to consider from the beginning is if you're sitting there and saying, I don't get it, why would anybody want to do what he's going to put before us today? Here's the answer, is if you know Jesus Christ and you understand that our sin, our rebellion, and the way that we think, feel, act, our behaviors, all those things, if we can agree that those things separated us from God... And so now within our rebellion, we're told that the penalty for that separation from God is death. And so we live in the reality that we can try to fill those gaps however we want, and we are incapable of doing that. But there was one, Jesus Christ, who left his rightful place in heaven and took on flesh, and he came to this earth. And on this earth, he lived the life of righteousness that we're called to, but we couldn't. And so when he went to the cross, he was able to pay our penalty because he conquered death when he walked out of the grave three days later. So when we come here today, this conversation that we're going to have today isn't for the person that says, you know what, I don't even know who this Jesus guy is. We're thrilled that you're here. Our lesson for today is talking about the disciple whose life has been transformed, that understands that who they are is based on what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross, who he is and what he did. And he walked out of the grave on day three. For those of us that already are there, these are some strong words, and I think what we're going to see is this, is the gap that exists from where we would want to be, from where we are today, to where we would want to be in our six-word memoir is going to give us a path to help us be where we want to be. I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 14. We've covered in our study that introduction of what a disciple is, and then we've started looking. There's seven characteristics. We've covered five of them. We talked about a supreme love for Jesus, that there is no rival in our heart for Jesus. He is it. And then we study the word. And then we looked at a verse that appears in several gospels, but there's three of them there, that you would deny yourself, that you relinquish the authority of your life, that you would take up your cross, you would recognize that you're under the authority of another, and follow me as our, we're following Jesus Christ. And that's what brings us to our message today, because he wants to transform the way we think and view this life. Luke chapter 14. Jesus, as he starts this, is going to say four of those five things I just mentioned. Join me in verse 25, if you would. 
Now, great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and he said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Do you hear that? Four of the five that we've studied are all in this same passage. Read it again. A supreme love for Jesus, the first one. If anyone does not come to me and hate his own father and mother, wife and children and brothers and sisters, is that there's no rival in our heart. Jesus is the supreme love of our soul. And even his own life, there's deny yourself. Whoever does not bear his own cross, take up your cross and come after me, follow me, cannot be my disciple. So he's already talking us through this. And let's be really clear, is what Jesus is going to bring us to in this passage isn't out of nowhere. It's the logical reality of where he's been taking us in this whole path. Because you and I could be in this experience where like, you know what, I had a bad day. I heard somebody talk about Jesus. Maybe I went to camp. Maybe it was an emotional time. And I thought, you know what, that sounds really good. I could be into this Jesus guy. And Jesus doesn't let us sit there. Look at what he does in verse 28, because he gives us two illustrations, and he really wants us to process. He doesn't want an empty commitment. He's not looking for an emotional response. He wants an understanding that we can grasp what he's asking of us. Look at what he says in verse 28. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation, is not able to finish All who see it will begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. That's the first of his two illustrations. We're going to consider building a tower. Here's the situation. We're going to look at this tower, and if we're going to build it, what happens if we don't follow through with it? There is no nobility whatsoever in building a tower that was supposed to be 10 stories, and you only get two stories done. They're like, oh... That guy was off to such a great start. Way to go. That was awesome. Those two stories were great. See, that was never the goal. The goal was we're going to build. We're going to move into this. And yet the reality is always there is we could abandon the project and just walk away from it. One of the things that happened, I think that I first started realizing this or using this analogy with my kids on a trip to Disney World. Because I recognize that when I go to Disney, everything costs way more money than it would cost anywhere else in the world just because Mickey's had it on it and we're in Florida. And so what I did was I got my kids debit cards and I said, hey, this is how much money's on this this card. So you spend it, you pick what you wanna buy because every store we walk into, I'm not going to say no to you and I'm not gonna buy everything in every store. And so we'd walk in that first store and they'd see something like, this is really, really great. I'd be like, this is awesome. Like, can I get it? I'm like, you got money. And then they'd look at me like, so I'm getting it. I'm like, okay, here's the deal. Parenting lesson, you cannot spend the same dollar twice. If you spend that dollar now, you will not be able to spend that same dollar again at the next door. And that card has got to last you all week. So, do you want it that badly? And they'd say, I don't know. Why don't we come back? A good decision. You and I could find ourselves in a project where we start saying, you know what, I feel like I want to build a tower. I like the tower. The idea of a tower sounds great. 
And then somebody comes and they offer you something like, well, you know, it's just a little bit more here. I mean, that's a good decision. I'll do that. And we could end up making so many other commitments along the way that we lose task on the prize, which is the tower. And the object, I mean, the risk is, is people are going to mock you like, look at this tower. Nobody finished the tower. They had a good plan, but they abandoned it. So count the cost. Sit down, make a plan, figure out what it's going to take for you to get the tower that you want to have, lay it out, get the cost, make sure you've got the money, and then move forward and do it. But he doesn't stop there. He gives us this second one about going to battle. Join me in verse, uh, verse 31. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great, great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Okay, so let's be clear. If you don't count the cost, you could start building a tower that you can't finish, and then people will look at you, they'll laugh at you, make fun of you, because you didn't understand what you were getting into. The second illustration is this. Imagine you're a king, and you're going into a battlefield, and your troop size is 10,000. You know what you've got, and you're going up against somebody that has 20,000. This enemy's coming at you with twice the army that you have. You know what you don't want to do? You don't want to sit there and say, yeah, but our 10,000 are way better than their 20,000. We got better strategy. We're probably going to win. We'll take them out because I got better strategy. Our people are of higher character. All that may be true. But the danger is that you could walk out on the battlefield and be overwhelmed. And now the risk isn't being scorned or mocked or ridiculed. Now what's on the line is your life. So you and I look around and say, okay. Well, I know that we've got an enemy in this life. I know that we have an enemy. What am I to do? Well, Peter tells us what the enemy's like. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Our adversary, our enemy is a, de- is a devil prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Let's make a couple of points. He's not a lion. He's not all-powerful. He is like a lion, metaphor, And what he does is roar really loud. And you and I hear the roar and we cower back. And we can be really scared of this. We were like, well, I've got this this enemy that's like a roaring lion. Is that like the 20,000 and I've got 10,000? I mean, why would I not be scared? Well, John says, hey, little children, you're from God and God is overcoming for he who's in you is greater than he who's in the world. Let's be really clear. This one, the enemy of my soul and your soul, he is, he is trying to prowl around and he's trying to roar like a lion to scare us. But make no mistake, this isn't you've got 10,000, he's got 20,000. You've got the Lord, he's omniscient, omnipotent, he is sovereign and he has you. We don't have to be afraid, but we need to count the cost. We've got to count the cost. Now, there's something that's been going on over the last couple of weeks because you're thinking, why do I need to count the cost? Why do I need to count the cost? I mean, I'm just going to walk with the Lord. I'm going to sing all the song. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. It's just going to be great. Why is he telling me to count the cost? Because this Christian life can be really, really hard. I don't know how much of you followed it, but I'm sure you recognize that, that June is known as Pride Month. So the Los Angeles Dodgers decide they're going to recognize this group called the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. 
They're a satirical group. They are a blasphemous group, but they're an LGBTQ group. And what they do and how they handle that can be really offensive if you know Christ and you love Christ. So they get invited to come and be honored at a Dodgers game when all of a sudden there is a big uprising against it, they cancel them. Well, then guess what? There's an uprising the other direction and they invite them back. Now, I'm gonna tell you about a guy named Blake Training. I've never heard of this guy and I like sports. He's a pitcher for the Dodgers. And if you and I are thinking, you know, Blake signed up to be a pitcher. That's what he wants to be. And yet count the cost, Blake. What's it mean to follow Christ? And so when Blake comes out a couple of days ago with this statement, I am disappointed to see the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence being honored as heroes at Dodger Stadium. Many of their performances are blasphemous, and their work only displays hate and mockery of Catholics and the Christian faith. I understand that playing baseball is a privilege and not a right. How great is that statement? My conviction in Jesus Christ will always come first. Since I have been with the Dodgers, they've been at the forefront of supporting a wide variety of groups. However, Inviting the sisters of perpetual indulgence to perform disenfranchises a large community and promotes hate of Christians and, the, and people of faith. I believe, listen to this, Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. I believe the word of God is true. And in Galatians 6, 7, it says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. This group openly mocks Jesus Christ, the cornerstone of my faith. And I want to make it clear that I do not agree with nor support the decision of the Dodgers. But for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, Joshua 24, 15. Now, I got to tell you, when Blake picks up a baseball as a child and starts throwing the ball around and starts working on his pitches and a fastball and a curveball and a slider, and he grows up and he gives all of his time to it, and he's walking with the Lord and he's learning how to live out his faith. I'm not sure he could have imagined a moment where he would say, I'm counting the cost, and I recognize that playing baseball is a privilege. And if I lose my job as a baseball player, so be it. I will stand up for my faith in Jesus Christ, and I've counted the cost. And if that's what it demands of me, then so be it. I'll walk away from baseball. You see, when we start talking about counting the cost, you and I can say, you know what? Sometimes it doesn't feel like there's much of a cost. Well, that may be true, but it may not be true. And Jesus is telling them, I want you to be really clear of what is at stake if we're going to do this. So look at what he does from this point forward. He goes off. This is what it's going to take. You're going to deny, you're going to love me more than anybody. You're going to deny yourself. You're going to take up your cross. You're going to follow me. Count the cause. How do you do that? Think about building a tower and not finishing. Think about going to battle and being overwhelmed on the battlefield. Verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Those are strong words. And yet recognize they don't exist in a vacuum. No, this is the one that says, I've been the curious. I've checked out the claims of Christ. I am now convinced that he's who he says that he is. And now I'm committed to walking with him and allowing him to direct the steps of my life and now I want to be the commissioned disciple that will honor him and serve him. You see, we're talking about people who are committed to walking with him. And now the calling is that we're going to steward what the Lord has entrusted to us. We're going to steward what we have. What does that mean? Ron Blue defines it this way. It's the use of God-given resources for the accomplishment of God-given goals. 
God-given resources to accomplish God-given goals. Because the steward doesn't own anything. The steward is the person that says, there is this, this estate that's been entrusted to me to care for. That's all I'm doing. Whatever I have, whatever God-given resources I have, is to accomplish what the plans are or the goals that God has. Now, my life becomes an investment. It's not about what I do with it beyond the fact, Lord, how would you have me use this for your purposes? Now, let's be real clear. We've shown this several times. And so when we talk about it, the idea that everything we're saying, if you don't know the Lord, just sounds ludicrous. Why in the world would I do this? But the moment that we've got this new heart that adapts to this view that this life is about what God's entrusted to me for me to use for his purposes, now all of a sudden, it's not about myself. It's not about, I want more toys. Lord, what you've given to me, how can I improve my family? How can I serve my church? How can I improve my workplace? How do I join the government and what the government's doing? How do I engage my world? See, it changes everything in the way that we process things. If you're like, well, Lance, what do I have? I mean, what really do I have? If I'm going to steward these God-given resources for his purposes, what do I have? Let me tell you, everybody in here has the same three things. Every one of us, time, talent, treasures. What do you do with your time? Where do you invest it? What are your talents or your skills? What is your gifting? Where do you invest it for its purposes? And what are your treasures? And if you're thinking, oh, here we go. How convenient. We're going to talk about money. And when you just heard our faith promise thing, I know. Let me tell you, when we decided to do the faith promise and launch that, I was so nervous. I'm like, oh my gosh, did that fall on this Sunday sermon? Because this sermon's been planned for well over a year. Okay? But let me tell you, I think Chuck Swindoll captures something for us when he says this. One-sixth of the Gospels, one-third of the parables address the subject of stewardship. Jesus was no fundraiser. He dealt with money matters because money matters. It's a surprise to many people, Christians included, that the Bible has so much to say on this subject. God has given us three ways on this earth to invest in eternity. Two of them are up for discussion, time and talent. And we approach them with open-mindedness. We can never seem to hear enough about them. But the third, treasures, seems to be nobody else's business. Nobody ever wants to talk about money. And yet we've got a choice to make. Based on how much Jesus talks about money, either he talked about it too much and we handle it correctly, or we don't talk about it enough because there's something the Lord wants to say to us about it that we need to hear. So today as we talk, I'm going to tell you, we will liken over and over again to time, talents, but a lot of our focus this morning is going to be on treasures. Why? Well, when we talk about time, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time. We know this. We know that days are evil. What are your priorities for where you spend your time? How are you making those decisions? So we know about stewarding time. We also know about stewarding our talents. When we come to this, for just as the body is one and has many members, all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. You have a part in the body of Christ. Let me tell you, Grace Church will never be all that we're called to be if we do not have our commissioned disciples stewarding their time and their talents and their skills and their gifts for the Lord's work in our community and beyond. I think that's part of it. But when it comes to finances, let's talk through some of this, okay? Let's begin with this idea. 
that there are some foundational realities and there's some foundational responsibilities. I've got them in the outline, and they're not exhaustive. So if you're a checklist person, this is not the exhaustive list, okay? But let's begin with some realities that we face in this life. Number one, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Everything we have, everything we see, everything in your bank account, everything in your shed, everything in your house, all of it is the Lord's. All of it has been entrusted to you and me for his purposes, God-given resources for the sake of God-given goals. How do we invest that back in the work? Well, there are certain things that we need to understand that are just realities that we live with. Like this one, Ecclesiastes, Solomon writes this for us. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. You and I all know this. When we finish our time here on earth, we're not taking anything with us. Maybe we need to hear that today. If that's true, then how do we go about amassing the stuff we have and using it for the Lord's purposes? It doesn't go with us. I think that's that quote from Jim Elliott I read a couple of weeks ago. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. What has the Lord entrusted to you? We can't take it with us. Furthermore, Jesus tells us, no one can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't have two masters. Only one thing gets to call the shots in our life. Is it going to be money or is it going to be the Lord? And you're like, well, is that really what he's talking about? Well, yeah, you cannot serve God in money. So pick which one. Because the reality is, is these riches of this world that we're trying to pursue or that we might want to go into can deceive us. They can deceive us. Paul writes to Timothy, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Who hasn't seen that? We've all seen that happen. And recognize, we're talking to disciples. We're talking about people who know the Lord. Is it possible that you can know the Lord, love the Lord, and still be drawn into this? Oh, absolutely. All the time. It happens. Well, how do, I mean, how come we don't see it coming? Well, Paul tells us it's a trap, it's senseless and harmful desires, and they plunge us into ruin and destruction. You recognize, plunge? It's not like you suddenly tripped, stumbled, lost your balance, and then you went down into destruction. No, it plunges you. And you may have heard people say, well, money is the root of all evils. Well, Paul goes on to say, no, it's the love of money. Money is, a, money is amoral. You could take money and use it for God's purposes, or you can use it for selfish gain. It can either be, have the Lord be your master so that you invest and leverage the resources he's given you for his purposes, or you can choose to feed yourself with it, your soul, your identity, all those things. He makes it really clear. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You know what? In the end, I just like my toys. I just really like my toys. And I'm unwilling to submit that to the Lord so that I'm going to go into the toy thing and I'm going to go back and forth in it. Part of the problem is this. He said to him, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Do we believe it? Do we keep adding to it? I read a report a couple of years ago that talked about America's love with self-storage units. 
It's the fastest growing industry in our country. And that makes me feel bad. Like our houses, we can't even accommodate the stuff we have. So we keep buying more spaces to put stuff. And as, as real as that was, when somebody said our self-storage spaces are all climate controlled, which means our stuff that doesn't live with us lives better than a lot of people in our world do. And all of a sudden I'm thinking, what are we doing? Let me ask you this. Go back to our six-word memoir. If we're here, we got this gap. If we're here at the end and we look back, how many of us want our six-word biography to be this? He had a lot of stuff. Is that life worth living? See, we look up and say, what's the point? Because life isn't about the abundance of our possessions. What do we do with what the Lord's entrusted to us? It's got to take a different turn. Because when Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Is is my treasure, is my heart with accumulating a lot of stuff? And it's amazing. I, I don't think I ever realized how much I accumulate until every time I move right? And then you get to that box, you're like, I haven't opened this box up since the last move. I certainly don't need that stuff. And yet there's all the new stuff I've got to add. Those are some realities of this world that we live in. When we think about stewardship, think about it in time, think about it in in your talents, but think about it with your treasures as well. Because I think as we come back around, there are some responsibilities that we need to recognize in our life. Paul writes about this way. Let's just begin with when Paul writes, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Here's what we know. The Lord will hold us accountable for how we steward the resources he's entrusted us for his purposes. So let's talk about it. Let's think about it. When the Lord says that, what are some things we need to be processing? So we come to this. Anyone who does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That doesn't mean you've lost your salvation. It doesn't mean that. It means this, is that even unbelievers recognize that there's a prioritization of your financial resources and your time and your talent to make sure that the needs of your household are met. We begin there. Whatever the Lord's entrusted to me, there are ways for me to serve my household with what he's entrusted to me. Can you imagine if you saw me and my, my kids didn't have, uh, weren't taken care of, my wife wasn't taken care of, and you see me riding around in sports cars full of toys, you'd say, Lance, what are you doing? Even the unbelieving world can look at you and say, Lance, you've got this all wrong. We begin with taking care of those people who are under our household. But yet it doesn't even stop there. In John, he writes this, but if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. It's those God-given resources that God has entrusted to you to steward. The question and the invitation is, hey, look around you. What legitimate needs could be met with what I've entrusted to you? You can say, well, I've done that before. Let me just tell you. If somebody else squandered your goodness and those good things that you invested in them, that is a reflection on them. It's not a reflection on you. The Lord saw your heart. The Lord honors your attempt to do what he asks of you to do. Nothing is ever wasted. So all of a sudden, what this certainly means is this. 
We don't pat people on the back and say, I'm so sorry, it's such a struggle right now. How can I put my arm around you and help you, give you time, give you whatever skills or gifts I have, and maybe it means helping out financially. We look for opportunities to do this. And we also do it, by the way, with the church. This one's, oh, Lance's talking about money. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside. You store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. Now, depending on your church background, you may have been taught a tithe. Uh, if you go back into uh, the Old Testament, you'll see there's actually four tithes that are listed there, one for the priests, one for the feasts, uh, one for the militia, and one was their welfare system. And if you add together those four tithes, it actually isn't 10%, it comes to 30%. It's really significant. We don't see the tithe being taught in the New Testament for believers. What we do see being taught is something that we call grace giving, and that doesn't mean grace church giving. We think it is grace, okay? So that's where do we get that from? We get it from 2 Corinthians chapter 9. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift that you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Let me tell you, when you walk into this place, we do not seek to exact money from anybody. The invitation is, there, you have God-given resources, and we're inviting you to participate in God-given plans. That's the calling. Time, talents, treasures. It's a willing gift. It's not an exaction. Nobody's trying to take your money from you. That's not what we're about. Matter of fact, Paul goes on and gives us a principle. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, whoever, and whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Okay? If you're giving of your time, talents, and treasures, if you're, being, if you're doing that sparingly, then recognize the gifts that you will see in the Lord coming back to honor those things will be smaller. If you want to see God do more, then you give more. That's the principle. Here's what doesn't happen. You don't give less and see God bless you with more. Those things don't happen. You sow a little, you reap a little. You sow a lot, you reap a lot. Okay? That's the principle that's there. And he goes on to say, each one must give as he's decided in his heart. See, it's not a math formula. It's not a math problem. It's what do you want to do with the God-given resources for God-given plan? What is it you want to do? And don't do it reluctantly. Don't do it under compulsion. Because the last thing he says is, God loves a cheerful giver. He's not trying to take your hands off of your money. What can you entrust to the Lord? And the Lord say, this is what I got, Lord. I can give this cheerfully, then give that. And if it becomes one dime more, they're like, okay, now he's just trying to take it from me, then don't give the dime. Just go back and say, Lord, what do you have? What have you entrusted to me that I could give back to you? And it changes the way we look at everything. And by the way, the church has to steward what has been entrusted to us too. We're talking about faith promises. We're not trying to build a kingdom here on our campus. We've got children's issues that we're trying to keep safe. We've got folks, we've got parking issues. We're trying to, to grow this campus to accommodate what God's bringing to us. Only on our campus we'll know. I shared some of these numbers at our Faith Promise meeting a couple of weeks ago. Our stewardship, we've got an administrative team that helps ensure that we steward our dollars, business people from our community that help us do that well. We have a community impact team that goes through any any ministry that we support or organization that we support, 
They work with, they research to make sure that we are investing and stewarding those resources wisely. Across 15 organizations, be it Salvation Army, Young Life, Straight Street, Interfaith, Christ Counseling Ministry, Food Bank, Boys and Girls Club. By the way, notice some of them are faith-based. Some of them are not faith-based, but they're doing good work in our community, and we're privileged to partner with them. Across those 15 organizations in the last seven years, we've, we've invested $300,000 in them. When it comes to benevolence and counseling fees, we've invested $50,000. Pine Cove Scholarship, we've got Pine Cove City here this week. We've invested $31,000 in the last seven years to help kids who couldn't afford to be here get here and hear about the gospel and be loved and cared for and introduced to the person of Jesus. Thanksgiving turkeys, another $24,000. That doesn't count the sides that our church family has provided over the years. Missions, another $30,000 for missionaries, good news clubs, overseas training, training foreign pastors. An Asian Christian Academy, our international ministry partner, $76,500. And if you weren't tracking on the math, here you go. A little over $511,000, more than a half a million dollars that we've stewarded back in. It's not just the Lord asking individuals to steward. He's asking us to steward resources as well. And by the way, you want to start counting up service hours in all those organizations where we serve? Huge, huge, huge. There are opportunities to do time and talents here because you're like, Lance, I'm tapped out. I don't have any more treasures to give. Well, there's opportunities to steward your time and talents too. We currently pay about 300 childcare hours a month because we don't have uh, the staff that we need to care for our children. So we, we hire people to do that. There's 300 childcare hours a month. We've got an open and closed team. If you think, hey, you know what? I don't have a lot of skills, but I can unlock a door and you could get here a little bit early and stay a little late, we'd love to have you. Coffee team? Oh, man, I'm not even a coffee drinker, okay? But if you coffee people don't have coffee, you can be grouchy. <laughs> and then you might snore in this room. If you say, hey, you know what? I don't have a lot of skills, but I would be happy to learn how to make coffee so that we can provide coffee and a warm cup of coffee for somebody. Media and tech team. We've got opportunities to serve. Matter of fact, I go on and on. If you go to our church's website, you can go to every ministry's webpage and you will see a listing of ways that we need people to serve. You say, I don't have any more treasures I can offer, but I got time and talent. We would absolutely love to have you. Why? Because you've been entrusted with time, talents, and treasures, God-given resources for God-given purposes. And we won't be the church God's calling us to be until everybody's functioning together. Let's come back. As for the rich in this present age, Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. If God has given you resources to enjoy, enjoy them. To not enjoy them is to hold God in contempt for the good gifts he's given you. Recognize them. Enjoy them. But recognize you could steward them in other ways as well. Paul writes, goes on to say, do good, be rich in good works, be generous, be ready to share. Look for opportunities to share what the Lord's entrusted to you. Storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future. There's more to this life than just amassing stuff. There's more to it. We need to look ahead. That's why we're told in Proverbs to consider the ant. Consider her ways. Be wise without having any chief, officer, ruler. She prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. Because winter's coming. We know winter's coming. So what does it look like to care for that? We've got to think through these things. And then as we consider those things, I would ask you, time, talents, treasures. I've said it many times. I hope that that 
is in your mind, if I were to ask you, okay, how's your investment portfolio? It's not invest one. Well, I'm kind of the treasure guy. I'll let other be the talent and the time. I'm the time guy. That's all I got. You have three resources. I have three resources. Time, talent, treasures. We're called to invest all three of those. So I'd ask you to consider under the reality that God has entrusted, everything is his. He's entrusted it to you and me to use for his purposes. What's the risk? He gave it to you to share. What's the risk for us giving it away? I want to share one more six-word biography with you. I feel bad for Kevin. Kevin's looking back and he says, I thought I would have more impact. If I were to ask you, how many of us in here want to live a life free of impact? Nobody would raise their hand. I kind of hope my life never matters. I kind of hope it doesn't do anything and nothing, nobody remembers me when I'm gone. I hope there's no legacy. Yet nobody would ever say that. Kevin gets here and says, thought I would have more impact. You know what I want to tell Kevin? Same thing I want to tell us. Kevin, because you still have breath in your lungs and you wrote that, Kevin, you have the chance to look forward. And you may look back and say, thus far I don't have any impact. But Kevin, that ship hasn't sailed on you yet. There's still a chance for impact, Kevin. What needs to change from this moment to this moment so that when you get here, you can say, thankful for the impact I did have. See, that's a life worth living. As I said from the beginning, we find our lives by giving it away. God built that into us. And so as I sat down and thought, okay, what would be my sixth word? What would I think? And I thought of two that I hope could maybe be me at some point. One was this, loved by God and blessed to steward. Whatever he gave me, it was for me to steward. But it begins with the fact that he loved me. And then because I so loved Josh just doing the one words, I thought of this one. Lost, found, redeemed, followed, commissioned, stewarded. I'd ask you to consider What do you want those last six words of your life to be? What do you want to be said about you? Because I think the gap between here and there is going to be the difference of giving our life away so we start being commissioned by the Lord to use the God-given resources for His God-given plans. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible-teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.